When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Up until three days ago, there was one thing that every Russia expert could agree on. President Vladimir Putin was an extraordinarily canny operator with an iron grip on power. But on Friday night, that began to unravel. And the Kremlin was in for a shock. There's a pretty wild situation unfolding in Russia tonight. Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of a Russian-affiliated mercenary group, appeared to release a video on social media accusing Russian military leaders of misleading the country. These accusations that Prigozhin has been leveling at the Kremlin, particularly at the defense minister, appears that these long-brewing tensions are now turning into something of an insurrection. Security is being ramped up in Russian cities amid reports of an armed rebellion. Authorities in the Russian capital, Moscow, have declared a counterterrorism state of emergency. The Kremlin is urging fighters in the Wagner Group to abandon their leader. This crowd is shouting Wagner, the name of the mercenary group that Vladimir Putin had accused of treason only hours earlier. The fighters were clearly among friends here. And then, on Saturday evening, with the mercenaries moving towards Moscow, there was another unexpected plot twist. President Putin was facing the biggest threat to his authority since coming to power over 20 years ago. But then, this evening, there was a sudden change, and the crisis seemed to be over. After a deal was struck which enabled the rebellious leader to retreat, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, is going into exile in Belarus after abandoning his advance on Moscow. Well, 24 hours ago, I would have said this is the most extraordinary event that has happened, but I was yeah. wrong. 24 yeah. hours later, it's even more extraordinary. What happened in the course of those 24 hours? How did Evgeny Prigozhin, a man who was considered a close ally of Putin's, end up leading an armed rebellion against the Kremlin. And in the aftermath, is Putin's authority bleeding away? It was an uh, indicator of some crisis in the uh, Russian government, who is not fully controlled. Vladimir Putin made a lot of mistakes. So what happens now? Is the rebellion definitely over? And can Vladimir Putin recover his grip on power? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Wagner mutiny. Is this the beginning of the end for Putin? I'm Maxim Tucker. I'm an editor on the Foreign Desk and a former Kiev correspondent, and I've returned to cover the war in Ukraine from the front lines since the full-scale invasion last year. 
Maxim, you were working on Saturday as everything we thought we knew about Russia was suddenly imploding. Talk us through that day. When did you realise that things were really kicking off and what was it like covering it? It was actually, it was late on, on Friday night when I looked at Twitter and saw that a lot of people were talking about Wagner threats to march on Moscow. And it transpired that Yevgeny Prigozhin claimed a Russian missile strike on his base. And as a result of that, he said he wanted to oust the Russian military leadership, the defence minister, Sergei Shoigu. There was a lot of chatter about it, but there wasn't very much evidence. It was night and there wasn't very much footage about where the Wagner columns were, where they were going, but people were talking about it. And it was all very exciting when I went to bed about three o'clock in the morning. And then I obviously wanted to check in the morning as soon as possible what had happened. And there he was. The troops had entered Rostov on Don, which is one of Russia's biggest cities and a huge military hub for Russia's war in Ukraine, really critical base for them. Within hours, there was a video of him chastising the deputy minister of defence and one of the generals in the southern military district, just sitting outside their headquarters, which apparently they'd already seized. But that was only half of it. It turned out that then he had another several columns of troops who were making their way north to Voronezh and to march on Moscow. So what he was saying was really true. He was really promising to march on Moscow. So this was a, a genuine mutiny. You had Russian generals coming out and saying, please, regular forces don't side with the Wagner fighters. And then Putin himself announcing that this was a kind of a traitorous mutiny. And it was very interesting because you normally have this very controlled Kremlin narrative. And it was clear that the Russian media were struggling as to how to frame this and talk about this without demonstrating that Putin had effectively completely lost control of the situation. It was a remarkable 24 hours. Like you, I couldn't sleep following the news and at about four in the morning you realised things were serious because Moscow was starting to defend itself and they clearly saw a threat coming. Everything that played out does feel like a tale of two characters and the psychodrama between them. The first is obviously Yevgeny Prigozhin, who we've talked about a lot on this podcast, but just remind us of who he is and how he's come to such prominence, how he got himself into a position where he could hold Moscow hostage almost. Well, Prigozhin is actually a former petty criminal who became Putin's caterer, as it were. And he's used that relationship to do all kind of extra tasks that Putin required. But the Kremlin wanted to have some official distance from, including setting up the Wagner Mercenary Group, which has allowed Russia to pursue conflicts around the world while claiming that it's officially not involved. So Prigozhin is a man really of Putin's creation. And Putin's style of leadership has always been to play his minions off against each other, you know, divide and conquer, keep everyone else weak, and you'll be the strong kind of peacemaker. But in this instance, he really misjudged it. And he gave Prigozhin a lot of power, a lot of rope. And there was this kind of bubbling conflict with the Ministry of Defense over military tactics and strategy in Ukraine. And this conflict has boiled over into Prigozhin essentially criticizing Putin himself, although he's careful not to name him, and then marching on Moscow. Just give us a sense, you know, before Friday night, what sort of position was Putin in? I mean, how strong was his hold on power? Well, Putin has designed a state that is difficult to undermine because he, he's got all of these different characters in different security services who are only loyal to him, suspicious of each other. There's lots of checks and balances that he's designed to keep himself at the top of the pile. But he has obviously been weakened by the war in Ukraine. It's clear to everyone now at this stage, despite 
what the Russian media says, that Russia has taken huge casualties in Ukraine. It hasn't achieved what it wanted to achieve in Ukraine, and it certainly hasn't taken Kiev in three days, which was the, the initial claim. And Maxim, take us back to Friday night, to where all of this began, with that incendiary video that Prigozhin puts out. Why was the war needed? The war was needed so that a handful of scumbags could have a blast and get PR attention showing how strong the army is. Tell us, what was it that he was asking for? Why was he so angry? What prompted this whole march into Russia? But it's always very difficult with him and anyone in the Kremlin or related to the Kremlin to detect what part of this is theatre and what part of this is real. It seems like he has genuinely become upset by the scale of casualties and the way that Wagner has been treated as cannon fodder, particularly during the attacks on Bakhmut, where they were just sent relentlessly against Ukrainian positions, no matter how many casualties they took. But he's also got his own agenda, and he may be kind of masquerading in the sense that he doesn't actually care about his men. He's just wormed his way into a hole where he's been critical of the defence ministers. He's tried to take more power than he usually gets, and that has led him down a path of confrontation, which he now is not able to escape from. I think his rhetorical attacks on the Ministry of Defence, he probably thought at the beginning he might be able to get away with them because he was just jockeying for power and favour from Putin. When he didn't get increased favours from Putin, he just escalated those attacks and then started implying that Putin himself was at fault, which is obviously a red line that you cannot cross in Russia. He's saying that he wants his a better thought-out strategy in Ukraine. It, he's basically telling the truth that Russia is taking it, tremendous casualties. It's not winning the war. It's not achieving its objectives. It needs to rethink what it's doing there and what the purpose of it is. And he's also started challenging the Kremlin narrative that this is a war of denazification. The war was needed not in order to return Russian citizens to our bosom and not in order to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. His video was, in a way, the strongest condemnation we've heard from a Russian about the Ukraine war. He made it quite clear that it happened for no obvious reason, there had been no great cause for it, and that people had gone and had encouraged this war in order to be promoted themselves. I mean, how will that have gone down with the Russian people? There's certain sections of the populace that that will resonate with. I mean, while the Kremlin has very tight control of the TV space, which is what a lot of particularly elderly people watch, there are still a lot of people who are on the internet reading Telegram messages. There are lots of pro-war bloggers who have been saying similar kind of things for a while. They tend to uphold the Russian reasoning for the war, but they say, look, there are casualties. They're very heavy. This has not been planned very well. And they're critical of the defence ministry. So he was amplifying a lot of those things that are already out there. And there will be sympathy, particularly among the military, who are frustrated with the way that this war has been planned and carried out. So with this video, with this sort of call to arms, this march for justice, Wagner seems to turn its back on Ukraine and is, instead is marching into Russian territory. It looks like they did that relatively easily, almost without a fight. Yes, it's astonishing that no one put up a fight. There are videos of Putin's kind of special police in the streets of Rostov, so they'd already been deployed there to try and stop them. And they put up barricades and then, you know, the Wagner group just drove their armoured personnel characters around the block posts and, and the police just stood by and watched them. They didn't open fire. And talk us through their moves when they get there. You know, as you said earlier, they seem to take over 
the headquarters of the Southern Military District. How important was that? And give us a sense of the scene. In the morning, we saw pictures and video of armoured personnel carriers and tanks driving into positions in the centre of Rostov-on-Don, completely unopposed. The security forces that were supposed to stop them standing by, looking on, and then them taking tactical positions around key buildings in the city, fanning out troops running, taking cover behind armoured vehicles uh, as they moved in, into position. And, you know, locals, some of them out and taking videos, kind of shocked, surprised, interested by what was happening. Others panic buying food, locking themselves in their apartments and expecting the kind of counterattack from government forces. As the day progressed, it seemed like that wasn't going to happen. And you had Wagner fighters casually strolling around, buying themselves coffee, this strange outdoor chat between the general, the deputy minister and Prigozhin, where they just sat and he ranted at them. And this is all the while as his other units were advancing around the city of Voronezh, where there does seem to have been some fighting and making their way towards Moscow. And, and it seems like perhaps Rostov was partly a distraction to allow the main body of the Wagner forces to get as far as they did and as close as they did to Moscow, and partly protecting the Wagner rear so that there couldn't be a counterattack on the troops who were advancing on Moscow. And probably as well, a little bit of spectacle showing how powerful Prigozhin is trying to demonstrate that he has popular support and also demonstrating that the military didn't put up a fight, the military didn't try and stop him. Meanwhile, in Moscow, they now have a full-scale mutiny on their hands. It's a challenge to Putin's authority. And he, unusually, makes an appearance. Talk us through that. Putin, he's trying to avoid talking about Prigozhin and the dispute between them. And I think that he's thought that that played to his advantage, let the dispute play out, and I'll play as the mediator when I need to. And then suddenly he's forced by the turn of events to come out and say this is a traitorous act. This is a criminal, adventuristic campaign. It is equivalent to armed mutiny. Russia will defend itself. This is a rebellion, a mutiny, and do not have sympathy, do not provide support to these people. They will be arrested, they will be punished. And that, I think, is must have been difficult for him because, you know, mm. as well as Prigozhin being someone who's had a relationship for a long time, he's admitting, I think for the first time, that the trouble in Russia is not Ukrainian or Western instigated, but it's one of his own who are doing it. This yeah. is actually a, a genuine Russian domestic problem. I mean, maybe we'll see the kind of Kremlin media trying to catch up and trying to spin this as a Western-backed coup attempt. But I think to most people, it would be clear from the relationship that Prigozhin and Putin have had and the, the kind of celebration of Wagner over the last decade that this is the beginning of Putin losing control. That's remarkable. And he looked rattled in his address when he stood up and spoke to the nation. He didn't look like a man in control in the way that he normally does. I think, you know, we've seen a few images of Putin over the years where he's you know, holding onto the desk, gripping tightly, looking quite unwell at the May Day parade. And I think that surely the weight of the situation is over the last year and a half. And the fact he's not in control, he hasn't got victories. He's, it's difficult to sell what he's trying to sell to the Russian people. And now you have this real insider threat. He's got to be thinking, does Prigozhin do this without any support from Moscow, from, you know, oligarchs and the elites and people inside the Kremlin? 
oh. is Prigozhin really that confident? And now he's, I think he's going to be quite worried about his own life in a way that he's always taken precautions and he's always been careful about that. But these are people who've been in the Kremlin, who know the corridors of power, they know where he retreats to, and they have experience, although they failed in doing so, in trying to infiltrate cities, as in Kiev, to grab leaders and kill them. And for Wagner fighters in Moscow or St. Petersburg or wherever they are in Russia, it's going to be a lot wow. easier for them to blend in than they would in Ukraine. So at this point on Saturday morning, Putin has done this big address. The whole country now knows that the Kremlin is in trouble, but it doesn't actually halt Wagner. Talk us through what's happening on the ground with the mercenaries. At this stage, Wagner forces have just reached the, another major city, Voronezh, which is about just over 300 miles from Moscow. And they're basically already two-thirds of the way there. And there does seem to be some fighting. There's a, a, attack helicopters that appear to have attacked the Wagner column, and Wagner has responded with anti-aircraft fire and, and brought down, it looks like, at least five Russian attack helicopters who wow. were fighting with the column. But there doesn't seem to be in a, a lot of fighting on the ground. Again, Wagner decided not to take the city this time. They go around the ring roads and continue their advance on Moscow. And here you have Moscow starting to panic and you have alarms going off, art galleries and public buildings being evacuated, police starting to tear up roadway on the advance into the city to try and slow Wagner down, set up checkpoints. Wow. Scenes that most Moscovites will not be familiar with. It, this is unheard of for them. They've had a few air raids, but they haven't had an assault by a, a land force on their city since the Second World War. So this is a, probably absolutely terrifying for most Moscovites who start buying plane tickets and plane tickets very quickly sold out. Um, you saw lots of private jets in the morning starting to leave Moscow and also wow. government flights that are linked to Putin and have often been used by Putin departing Moscow in the direction of St. Petersburg and his Valdai residence, and then just disappearing from radar. So we think he might have got out of Moscow in fear. Once Wagner had reached within 200 kilometres of the city, and you could see sandbags being put up and military units moved into place on the approach roads, I think it, it was time to get out of the town. And yet Putin, rather than being in control, we think has even left Moscow at this stage. The rest of the world is watching what seems like an unstoppable march towards the capital. And then very suddenly, it's all over. Do we know what happened to call the coup off? We don't know what happened, but we can guess. So Prigozhin has claimed to have 25,000 fighters under his command. And that has obviously been whittled down by the war in Ukraine. So he was probably moving to Moscow with a force of 10,000, some of whom were obviously still in Rostov. And although most of the Russian regular military are obviously preoccupied in Ukraine, there still are a couple of tank regiments outside Moscow, an armoured unit, thousands of security forces who at least have Kalashnikovs and, and can fight in the streets of the city. So Prigozhin had to make a decision. He had to think whether all these people will in fact put down their weapons and join him, in which case he'll take Moscow without a fight really. And then what does he do? He's avoids calling this a coup. He's called it a march for justice. So he's not claiming to overthrow the government. He's asking for better terms. And then Lukashenko says, here are your better terms. And here's a, is a way out of it. So I think he decided that rather than gamble 
his fighters and the power that he has and possibly lose in a fight to take this way out. But it doesn't seem like a sustainable solution for him. Belarus is not going to be a safe haven for him. It's well within reach of Russia's KGB and the FSB now and other security forces. He's made a decision to keep his forces intact. It's probably because he thinks he didn't have the numbers to take on the entire city. And then also, once he's done that, what does he do with it? He's made a point and he hopes that might be enough to buy him some time to figure out what to do. But Belarus, I don't think, is going to be a long-term option for him. So this is just the end of Act One, really. But as you say, this is a, a deal that's been brokered by President Lukashenko of Belarus. Is he powerful enough to have given Prigozhin the assurances that he needed and to get Putin's buy-in? Lukashenko has the ear of Putin and he knows Prigozhin, but he is not a powerful man, especially at this point. He has clung on to power in Belarus. He doesn't have popular support there anymore since 2020. And he hasn't been able to make decisions regarding the war in Ukraine. He's been forced into allowing Belarus to be used as a, a staging post for Putin's invasion. It's increasingly looking like Belarus is just a kind of a semi-autonomous part of, of Russia. So he can certainly play a role as mediator, but he cannot, I think, give meaningful long-term assurances to Prigozhin that he will be safe in Belarus. Prigozhin will obviously still have Wagner fighters around him, and I'm sure he will maintain some level of protection for himself in case Putin does come after him. But uh, yeah, this is definitely the end of stage one, a puzzling end to it and a very abrupt end to it. And I think we need to wait and see what comes next, because He's obviously unsettled the Kremlin as well. And we don't know if he acted with backing in Moscow. And perhaps perhaps the higher backing in Moscow suggested, OK, you've done enough now. You've undermined Putin. You've demonstrated that he's not in control of this situation anymore. Now let us carry on and finish the job. We'll actually mount a real coup. So there's probably a lot going on behind the scenes now that we can only guess at. Coming up, Act One might be over, but what comes next? Can Putin recover his grip on power? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Maxim, Saturday 
was the closest we've come in decades to seeing a coup in Russia. From what you say, there may still be plans in the background, plotting going on, that means this is not over, this is just the end of Act One. During the course of Saturday, there were a few key moments when we heard statements from particularly a general who had been a great ally of Prigozhin's and also the head of the Chechen army, who has his own private army of about 25,000 people. They came out in support of Putin rather than Prigozhin. If that had gone differently, would we have been in a very different position now? I think we would be in a very different position. If General Sudovikin, who is widely respected in the military as, as a kind of very ruthless but effective commander, if he had come out and said, OK, it's time to change the way that we do things, we need to change the leadership, I mean, that effectively that becomes a, a mutiny, not just by the Wagner mercenary group, but an army mutiny as well. And I think that would spell the end for Putin's regime, even if that was not necessarily Prigozhin's intention, because he never said he was trying to mm. orchestrate a coup. Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen warlord, it's slightly different because, yes, he's a, a very close ally of Putin, but essentially his forces, are, they're autonomous under the Chechen federal subject of Russia. So they're not really Russian regular forces. It becomes a kind of another Chechen war situation in a way. So that would definitely complicate things. It would definitely have demonstrated that Putin has, has lost his grip and he's losing his closest allies. And I think it would have encouraged maybe others inside the Kremlin to make a move or some of the oligarchs to think about what they can do to get rid of Putin. But they're all going to be tripped up by the very tight control that Putin has over the security forces. So there's still lots of different forces at play and you could have had a very messy civil war with lots of different factions involved. And it's not clear that then Prigozhin would end up being the leader of that because he's been relatively effective in Bakhmut, but that's only relative to a very badly performing Russian military. And I don't think he's a terribly popular character. So even if he managed to bring down Putin, I'm not sure he'd be the man to emerge and replace him. It's not clear who would be because Putin has made that any kind of idea of succession very, very difficult. And this seems to have sort of happened. It was triggered on Friday by... Real anger at the state of the war. Prigozhin said he thought there had been a strike on his men by the Russian army. So rather than fighting the Ukrainians, they were fighting each other. Was this a long time in the planning, though? Because there were suggestions on Saturday that perhaps Prigozhin and Wagner had been stockpiling weapons for a while. Do we know any more about that? It looks like... It must have been some time in the planning because it was a complex operation. They'd obviously identified weaknesses in the Russian defence of Moscow, in the regular army's defence of Moscow. They'd obviously got a plan as to how they could enter Rostov, how they could do this quickly. There are a lot of logistics that you need to plan. So it's not the case that his base was bombed on Friday and then he decided to take action immediately on Saturday. There are these reports that he'd been stockpiling ammunition and that his claims of being starved of shells during his attack on Bakhmut were false. And in fact, he was using that to just acquire more and more equipment that he could use for his own personal gain. There's also reports, and we don't know how seriously to take them, but from the Discord leaks, which are alleged to be American intelligence documents, that Prigozhin had been in touch with Ukrainian military intelligence and had been offering to give them the location of different Russian regular troop movements. Yeah. It's a very long-running feud now with the Defence Ministry. That's been going on for well over two months. So 
he may have been making a plan for an eventuality and then acted on it. Or he may, this may have been his intention all along. You know, I see myself getting in a sticky situation. We're all going to die in Ukraine because we're just being used and, and wasted. My power is being eaten away because my soldiers are being used as cannon fodder. How do I get out of this while retaining some influence and some power and a core group of people that I need to protect me? And he may have now decided that if he can set up camp in Belarus with some of his mercenaries and run things in Africa, that will work out for him. But he's got to know that Putin is not going to leave it at that, and he will at some point come after him. And that's so interesting. Will he be able to run bits of Wagner from Belarus? Because one of the triggers for this March for Justice was that what Wagner fighters were being asked to sign contracts with a Russian MOD, which would have made them part of the state rather than Prigozhin's empire. Does he get to keep his empire? I mean, what happens to Wagner now? As part of this peace deal, Wagner fighters are again going supposed to sign contracts with the Russian regular army and Wagner is going to be absorbed in between the army and other private military companies. But, you know, that's a provision of an agreement that I just don't expect Prigozhin to honour. I mean, it would leave him toothless. It would leave him completely toothless and alone in Belarus, completely dependent on the protection of Lukashenko, which I cannot imagine for a minute that he would accept. And in that deal that was struck, apart from Wagner, you know, officially starting to sign contracts with the Russian army, being told they wouldn't be prosecuted, there would be an amnesty, nobody would face any consequences for Saturday. Prigozhin was obviously told that he could go to Belarus and he would be safe. What are his chances? I mean, should he be on permanent Novichok watch now? <laughs> I think absolutely. When I was looking at this deal and thinking that he's going to go to Belarus and rely on a very aging dictator who's, there's been many reports of his frail health. And, you know, he hasn't been able to protect the sovereignty of this country. Belarus is essentially being absorbed into Russia in many regards and used as a staging post for invasion of Ukraine. He cannot rely on, on Lukashenko. And even if Lukashenko made his best efforts to protect Prigozhin, from the Russian FSB and, and the agents who were probably likely sent to try and kill him, those agents are, are far more sophisticated than the Belarusian government forces. And Belarus's government security forces are very likely infiltrated to a very high degree by the Russian security forces. So, you know, when I saw this deal, I thought Prigozhin might as well choose his poison now because he's not going to be safe <laughs> if he does that. Dead man walking. Mm. Unless he has another plan we don't know about. The deal which was struck, which seemed to let Prigozhin off scot-free and it seemed to let the Wagner mercenaries off without facing any consequences, despite the fact that Russians had died in the process on Saturday. I mean, did the whole thing make Putin look incredibly weak? Yes, I think it makes Putin look very weak. He's lost control of his borders in Belgorod and Bryansk, and then he's lost control of an entire city, a huge city, Rostov and Don, more than a million people. And Wagner was able to march on Moscow completely unimpeded. And, and yes, the regular forces don't seem to have joined in large numbers Wagner's march, but they didn't stop it either. And that's got to have Putin very worried about his loyalty amongst the military. Hundreds of thousands of demotivated angry Russians with weapons now. And he's got to be very worried about their loyalties. What does all of this mean for the war in Ukraine? You know, we know Wagner was among the most effective fighting 
force on, on the ground in Ukraine. What happens now? Well, so Wagner has already been pulling back for some time from different regions and handing over to the Russians. That will now be accelerated and there will definitely be some gaps that Ukraine will be looking to exploit. They might not know straight away which areas were held by Wagner, which areas were held by Russian regular forces. So they might now try to exploit it. But I think we thought that this was going to have massive implications for the war in Ukraine because particularly because Rostov-on-Don is a hugely important supply hub. And then they've marched through Voronezh as well, which is another big, important military logistics city. And if Prigozhin had even just sat in Rostov-on-Don for a week, it really would have impacted the Russian war effort and the supply chains. And it would have created really big problems with morale inside the Russian army because they wouldn't be sure about what's happening in their rear and whether they're going to get supplies. And Ukraine would definitely have used that to their advantage. Now it's a very uncertain situation. You know, Russia is continuing to bomb Ukrainian cities. There are obviously lots of the Russian military that are still carrying out orders according to plan. Mm. So it might not have the most kind of profound impact that we thought it might do. But in the long term, it's definitely the beginning of the unraveling of Putin's regime because this all-powerful kind of czar role that he's been playing has just been demonstrated to absolutely be a fraud. And Maxim, Saturday was obviously mad. Standing back now, does it feel like it was a flash in the pan or was it really the start of the unravelling? Was it the day that changed Russia? I still believe it's the day that changed Russia. We may not see the results of this for several months, but I think that this has shown to everyone in Russia that the war has real consequences for Russians. It's creating instability. It is demonstrated that Putin is not the all-powerful man in control of every situation, and he can be challenged by people very close to him. And then importantly, people very close to him can challenge him and then get away with it. And I think that's going to be the message that he is going to need to rectify sooner rather than later. He has to demonstrate that you cannot just lead a march on Moscow and then escape to Belarus unharmed. That is going to be a really big problem for him. So he's going to need to find a way to punish Prigozhin. Otherwise, he just looks inept. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Maxim Tucker, foreign correspondent at The Times. You can find all of Maxim's recent reporting and all of our coverage of the Wagner mutiny at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producers today were Priyanka Deladia, Edward Drummond and Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.